The gloomy night is gathering fast. Loud roars the wild in constant blast. Yon murky cloud is foul with rain. I see it driving o'er the plain. The hunter now has left the moor. The scattered coveys meet secure. While here I wander, pressed with care, along the lonely banks of air. So that was The Farewell to the Banks of Air, a poem by Robert Burns, um, which paints a rather bleak image of air, but hopefully during this episode we're going to paint a bit more of a rosy one. I'm Jenny. And I'm Annie. Welcome to Stories of Scotland. And this week we're hearing tales from my granny's childhood. She grew up in air, and as we'll find out, she went to the same school that Robbie Burns went to, this episode starts with a lot of laughter, but also kind of dips into family grief and interactions with prisoners of war. So, with great anticipation, let's meet Annie's granny. Enjoy! Okay, it's the 2nd of November and we are sat in my granny's living room. There's a roaring fire... And it's raining outside. Oh, that's good. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Oh, yes. I'm Jean Halliday. Mm -hmm. And what year were you born? I was born in 1936. So what's your earliest memory? Oh, I think it would be going to primary school. And how old were you when you started? four and a half. Okay. And it was only about 60 yards down the road from the house I lived in. <laughs> so the teacher always knew where I was. <laughs> <laughs> was she a nice teacher? Yes, lovely. Miss Wilson. And um, where did you grow up? It, 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 uh, I was born in Straven in Lanarkshire. Uh-huh. And I grew up at Hollybush in Ayrshire. Oh, and I went to Hollywood School and then I went to Dalrymple School. That was the school that um, Robbie Burns went to. Ah, mm-hmm. did you know him? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, no, we were all quite shy people down there. <laughs> <laughs> it's lovely in Ayrshire, though. Mm-hmm. I loved Ayrshire. How long were you there for? I was there till I was about uh, 16 and a half or 17. Okay. Then I went to Dumfries and picked up Jimmy. <laughs> <laughs> and we started roaming. So did you enjoy school? Yes, I loved school. What uh, was your favourite subject? Going to walk on a Friday for wildflowers. I don't think children nowadays realise what we had. You know, the lesson's all done, right, jacket on and off we go and we're trying to find some flowers that we can take back to school and write about. And that's oh. the whole of the afternoon on Fridays was spent like that. And that was, was every Friday? Mm-hmm. And it helped you understand the countryside and the the, the the wild flowers and the wild trees and tree leaves and everything like that. I love that. And what was your favourite flower? It's Oh, it's always been the poppy. Even mm. the wild poppy or the ordinary poppy, whichever poppy. <laughs> and what is it that you like about them? I think because they're a natural-looking thing. They just blow in the breeze and just just their habitat. They grow anywhere. 
If it were a, a piece of wood, even they're so yeah. versatile. They're very fragile, though. Well, I do, but you don't talk to be picked wildflowers. Uh-huh. <laughs> not unless you're doing a subject on them. They're to be looked at, not mm-hmm, to be picked. Because mm-hmm. yeah. they don't last. They don't. Mm-hmm. They don't last. So I think it's quite sweet that my granny's first memories are wild poppies and tinned peaches because my granny has always been a gardener with an excessively sweet tooth. (laughs) Yes, and poppies are a really interesting choice, because the poppy flower became a popular symbol of remembrance for soldiers from 1921 onwards, and poppy pins were used as a fundraiser for war veterans and their families. They were called Flanders poppies because of the famous poem in Flanders Fields, However, I came across a wee article in an old newspaper saying that Flanders poppies grew in Scotland long before this. Now, that's because foundries, places where metal is cast, um, they would import large quantities of Belgian sand, which would be stored in heaps near the foundries. It chanced that poppy seeds would land in this sand and become mingled with it in Belgium, and then after it was transported to Scotland, the wind would blow these seeds from the sand heaps and scatter them over a fairly wide area in the Clydeside Industrial District. These alien poppies took root and grew, and ever since, those now historic flowers have helped to brighten our wilderness. Oh, lovely. And of course, wild poppies have grown in Scotland for centuries, but they have indeed come from abroad, and they've got plenty of uses, um, some quite abstract. A couple of hundred years ago, the wild poppy roots would be mixed with water to help in the processing of flax into linen. I've never heard of poppies grown for consumption in Scotland. However, poppy seeds were, and still are, imported for eating. And poppies are a brilliant flower to plant in your garden because they support wild birds who eat their seeds and bees who love their nectar. As well as this, like your granny said, they are beautiful, fragile flowers which add not only vibrant reds to your garden, but also bright shining yellows, pure whites, and soft purples. I always think of the poppies in The Wizard of Oz. That was Technicolor for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yes, it sounded like my granny grew up with quite a naturally formed relationship with the outdoors, much like my papa. She clearly loved investigating flowers and leaves, and this is quite essential to her rural identity. The poppy is so marvellously delicate, and I think that we see this delicacy reflected in the rural life that my granny was living, because the incredible developments that happened in technology, combined with increasing urbanisation, meant that the way of life that's described by my granny has only got a limited time span, much like the poppy. It's temporal, and we're hearing a very special snapshot from her generation. The reason that poppies are in so many countries is because their seeds are so resilient and hardy, much like my granny's generation. Fragile but resilient. Shall we go back to granny? Absolutely. Let's continue. So, this is outside of school. What kind of entertainment would you make for yourself? Oh, we had great fun. It was great. There was a family down the road. They had nine children, all mixed ages. 
And then, of course, there was a big gorse plantation bit and it was a big sand pit and we all met there. Took our sandwich down and had it there and it was really wild fun. What would you have on your sandwiches? Very little then. It was usually jam or... or but my mother made jam and all those things. But you couldn't get... It was during the war and it was two ounces of cheese a week and two ounces of butter a week and very little... You know, he'd sharing. It was it was all careful planning with food. Mm-hmm. So we were all lovely and slim. <laughs> Never seen a banana till I was about 14. What did you think when you saw it? I loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. Did you find it confusing? Because you don't get many yellow foods. No, but it was. I thought it was great to get this, but... The only thing we got was when I was about 11, going to secondary school, and the, we got sent a gift of a box, a gift box from Canada. Yeah. Every pupil in the school got it, and it had a tin of fruit and peaches. Oh, we'd never seen tin peaches or t- <laughs> any tin food like that. I was just, you know, just to open that box, it was like Santa coming all over again. <laughs> it was wonderful. So, what would be your average meal when you were a child? We had soup, a lot of soup, because my dad was a great gardener. And we had a lot of soup. And we were lucky because my dad was on the farms. He couldn't go to the army because of his eyesight. And we got milk and potatoes and all the veg. So we, and then we had a lot in the garden. So we never went hungry. We missed the sweet things, I think. I did. (laughs) I did. And what did your mum do during the war? She worked in a hotel in Preswick. Mm -hmm. And it was a big hotel at Preswick where the American RAF came in, you know, and and they were good with sweets and things. And and, and where she worked, she got tickets for the theatre... Um, every second week. There was her and another woman and they got two tickets each every second week. And my brother and me would be going to Airgatey, him 13 and me 11, and on we were going to the theatre to Airgatey. <laughs> Not the size of Tuppence, but... <laughs> but we loved it. In fact, Jimmy and me went to Airgatey. We used to go 50 miles to Airgatey once a month when what? the programme changed. What's Airgatey? It's a theatre and it's it's a show. We were there the first night the Alexander Brothers sung when they were 16. <laughs> what uh, kind of music did the Alexander Brothers sing? We sang Scottish music. Ah, oh, lovely. And Jack Mulroy, he was a comedian. It used to be Francie and Josie, they were called. And, and, and Jack Mulroy was a comedian and he was a quite dry sort of comedian, <laughs> but, but good, you know, he, if what he said had a double meaning sometimes, <laughs> you could take it whatever way you wanted. But when we did that, we had a lot of we had a lot of freedom really because we'd got to go take the bus seven miles to go to the theatre, the two of us. Mm-hmm. So I hadn't heard of a gaiety before, had you? Um yes. A gay old time, Jenny. Ah. So a gaiety is just a very jolly experience. And as the theatres would put on shows that involved a lot of dancing, music, 
joy and merriment. The word gaiety evolved to become the name of these theatres. Oh, and that's certainly how your granny remembers the air gaiety. I love how you can hear the excitement in her voice when she talks about the shows that her and her brother would go and see. It's clear that she holds this place very dear and has some lovely childhood memories from it. Yes, so remember that back in the 40s when my granny was growing up, the only media entertainment that she would have encountered would have been the wireless. And this was mainly filled with adult programmes and war updates. And at the time that her and her brother were getting the bus the air gaiety, TVs were not common at all. During the war, when barely anyone had a TV, the BBC television branch just shut down completely. And so after the war, it was just picking up again. It wasn't until 1953, when Queen Elizabeth's coronation was broadcast nationwide, that most people even experienced household TV. After this, it became much more common. But still, the theatre would have been one of the few times your gran and her brother saw professional visual performances. Hi, I mean, we've, we've got a kind of overlap in time here when TVs are going to start coming into the households, but the, the theatre is still where people are going for entertainment. Mm-hmm. And it means that the theatre is, I mean, still a special occasion, but it's perhaps a bit more commonplace mm-hmm. than what it would be nowadays. Yeah, and on top of that, it's really interesting because nowadays the idea of two young children getting the bus to a theatre alone rather than, you know, watching TV or YouTube, it's, it's unheard of. Aye, indeed. And Air Gaiety is still a very living theatre. It's a grand, beautiful theatre in the centre of air, known for its warm atmosphere and wonderful acoustics. Back in my granny's day, they would have put on all types of entertainment, not that dissimilar to today, from music to comedy. And of course, they had a very popular summer variety show called The Gaiety Whirl, which would have things ranging from opera to acrobatic acts. And you can watch clips online of some of these acts. Um, I particularly enjoyed watching Jack Mulroy, who your gran mentions, as part of his famous double act, um, Francie and Josie. If you've never heard of them, I can highly recommend watching some to get a picture of what comedy was like back then. And if you have heard of them, go back and have a watch just to refresh your memory. It was, it's really fun stuff. But we were different, my brother and me, in a ways. Was your brother older? Mm-hmm. He was two years older. I mean, it was fun growing up, you know. Yeah. Was it just the two of you? For eight years, because my mother was working then and it was during the war and and I had a young brother who died. He mm. took one of these viruses, diphtheria or something. We took him to hospital and he died. So it was eight years because it took my mother a while to go over that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so then I had my sister Betty. And then there was Marion, uh, so there was a big gap between me and them and mm-hmm. uh-huh. my brother and me and them, you know, so just like a different generation. Mm-hmm. But, no, I enjoyed my childhood. I thought it was great. I feel sorry for children nowadays. Why do you feel sorry for them? Oh, you know, well, we were out and about and, and that and talking and I think conversations lost a lot now. 
And we played rounders and all these games. How many children go and play rounders now? Mm-hmm. Not out in their back garden. They don't, you know. There's it's because there's lots of children about and nothing to do except make your own fun. Yeah, I guess now it's so easy to just sit in front mm. of the TV or your phone. You and you see, ah, uh, you see that the phones and there was no many phones about. Just doctors and, and school teachers and and professional people had phones. Because mm-hmm. you couldn't get them. I mean, it's, it's it was a way of life. Mm-hmm. And do you think it shaped you being out in nature for so long in your childhood? I think I've always been in the country, and it's always been good. I think if you've been brought up in the country, you you've you know how to adjust to things. What kind of technology did you have in your house? All of, all we had was a wireless. And you used to get information, and it was mainly war information that came over it. But although some nights it was country and western singing and other things, and you know, just, just, but we made our own fun. What do you think about the amount of food available to us nowadays? Well, I like the sweet stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think there's a, there's too much. There, there's too much food. There's too much waste. Mm. Yes. There was no waste end. There would never have been seen a waste of apple. We used to go home from school, and if you had a penny for the bus, you didn't go on the bus, you walked. It was about a mile and a half. But you could stop at this wee house and buy three apples <laughs> and give him your money. And oh. you munched them on the way home and laughed and joked. <laughs> there was no traffic in the roads, you see. The roads were quiet. There was just the buses and the doctors and the police had cars. It was very... You were very safe, you know. Mm-hmm. I think we had quite a happy, well-adjusted childhood, mm-hmm. you know. Played a lot of cards and games and, you know, at night we did that. But then we always went to bed about nine. You know, it's so, there's nothing else to do. So you were a child during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned hearing about it on the wireless. Mm-hmm. How did that make you feel? It, it involved us. It involved us because it was a f- not far away. It must have been about maybe four, five miles. There was a prisoner camp for German prisoners of war. Mm. And I'd begun up at night with a can to get the milk to the farm from the night milking. And then I walked back with my dad. But sometimes, about four times, the police car stopped and said, you have to get out of the car, someone's escaped. And they would kidnap a child to get freedom, to get... You know, that was the way of thinking then. If they could kidnap... you, Children weren't allowed. The police picked up all the children that would be in the road if someone had escaped from this prison. So, I mean, you were a kind, it was kind of nervous too, in a way... But I never worried because I got to the farm and I was walking back home with my dad. It wasn't that far. Mm-hmm. But there was things then that you had to be careful about. I mean, twice these kind of men that escaped came to the door. <gasps> my brother answered it. And they were wanting supposed to be a drink of water. And my brother Davy shouting, Dad, they're funny speaking people at the door. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> now we'd think it was somebody come in from Mars, wouldn't we? <laughs> but this was two men who'd escaped from this prison camp. They mm-hmm. were quite clever at, at getting out the Germans and that, you know. 
<laughs> and, and twice he shouted that. And then if after they went away, they kind of gave him a drink of water, then my dad had to go from about here up to uh, maybe the top of the road there. And that's where Miss Wilson, the headmistress, stayed. And they had a code chapped in her door and she phoned the police and said, the two men's here. Ah, OK. But you see, not everybody had a phone, so that was the kind of way they worked. So Miss Wilson knew by the phone, by the chapping in the door, that it was one of her people that could give her a message. And she used the phone. Now, this was really interesting to hear your grandma talk about. Prisoner of war camps in Britain were actually fairly common during the Second World War. There were almost 200,000 prisoners of war in the UK by the end of the war. And in the area where your grandmother grew up, there were three prisoner of war camps within 50 miles of each other. Yes, so this is actually quite unusual to have such a high density of prisoner of war camps in one place. But these camps were placed in rural locations strategically so that the prisoners could fill the gaps in the workforce that had been left by young farm workers who had gone to support the war effort. The prisoners of war were mainly German and Italians, captured in the battlefields of Libya, Egypt and Tunisia, the North African campaign. Jeez, from Algeria to air, that's got to be a shock to the system. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that prisoner of war camps would have been a really tough place to be but still comparatively better than being on the front lines because you're quite safe. Plus, prisoners were paid for their work um, in accordance with the Geneva Convention and in general, the camps provided quite decent living conditions. In one, Pennyland, which was very close to where my granny grew up, um, it housed over 2,000 prisoners at its peak and there was a bakery, craft workshops a choir, a theatrical group, and even well-kept flower gardens. If you want to read more about it, there's some amazing research that's been done by the Cumnock History Group. And with over 2,000 men in one camp, I bet the farmers would have been more than happy to have the extra hands. But these guys are the enemies. How was it that thousands of them were allowed out onto the fields to work? Surely there must have been so many guards required that it wouldn't have been worth it. Well, the prisoners were interviewed intensely on their views and beliefs about the war and the current political state. They would have been ranked based on their answers, and those who were believed to be a low risk were allowed to work during the day and return at night. Okay. On a lot of farms, uh, there weren't any guards at all, and the prisoners of war were supervised by the farmer. And in some cases, they were even allowed to stay overnight at the farms. They still wore uniforms so that they could be recognised as prisoners of war. However, this doesn't mean that the prisoners didn't try to escape, though. Yes. In fact, one of the largest prison breaks of the whole war took place at Dunfoot Prison Camp, one of the others close to your gran. Aye. So Dunfoot Camp was used to house the higher-risk prisoners, those who were classed as non-cooperative. These would have been prisoners who had expressed views that they were still loyal to the Axis forces, and they were considered too high of an escape risk to let them out to work. Ah, that explains why they tried to escape. 
See, the men had a secret radio and were using it to listen to German and Italian war updates. When it was discovered and confiscated, one man, Lieutenant Pietro Graf, decided he'd had enough and rallied together some of the men in the camp. They worked together to take advantage of the loose, sandy soil that covers much of this area. See, as a result of the last Ice Age... And Wait, let's not get too geologic in this episode. <laughs> I can see this glacier glint in your eye. You're clearly desperate to talk about soil, but not right now, Jenny. Alright, but one day we're doing an episode on the soils of Ayrshire. But yes, the prisoners of war found that Ayr's soil was loose and really easy to dig through. So over the course of a few weeks, the men tunnelled way out beyond the boundary of the camp and eventually completed their route to freedom. Soon after this, the men, totalling 97, made their escape, each crawling one after the other through the long, dark tunnel until they emerged on a beach facing the dark Atlantic. The freedom of the fresh air of air quickly turned very cold, though, as the men had escaped on the 15th of December. Oh! Now, I used to go to the beaches at air on sunny summer days, and let me tell you, it was Baltic then. So these guys were in for a tough time. And it proved just that. The cold and lack of planning meant that most of the escaped men didn't get too far. After the adrenaline rush wore off, most of the men just sort of wandered around the nearby towns and fields aimlessly. There were a few reports of men knocking on doors looking for food and shelter, so your grandma's brother may very well have met one or two of these escaped Italian prisoners. Mm. Yeah, But uh, 47 were captured the next day and 30 the following. The police and soldiers rounding them up found that it was not that hard to get the men to return to the camp. Most went without protest, probably just looking forward to being in a warm bed again. And what happened to their leader? Ah, Graf. Well, he was one of the last to be captured. He and a few men were caught five days later hiding in a goods wagon in Dalrymple's train station, which was tiny, so they can't have been too hard to find. They had planned to stow away down to the south of England. However, after their discovery, they too were returned to the camp without much of a fuss. Davy me, it goes to show that the camps weren't located in the countryside purely for easily accessible farm workers, but also to reduce the risk of escape because if there's nowhere to run, no transport to get you away, and incredibly harsh weather, then the prisoners are much less likely to try to escape. Mm. It's interesting, though, to see that even though this was a huge escape, that the men hadn't really planned anything for the other side. Yeah, it's a bit bizarre. It almost seems like it was just a way of passing the time in the camps, you know, the planning, the preparation, the digging. It must have all provided great excitement and camaraderie, and if nothing else, it was something to put their energy towards, and a good tale for the grandkids. told you that brother of mine died and it affected my mother a bit for two years she was very withdrawn and that and I think I grew up quicker because I would have been about seven or eight at the time and I think I grew up quicker because it, it caused a kind of lull in the house for a while and I think it did affect us a bit you know but then because she was a person who went dancing who my dad didn't go out but her and her two pals went dancing just just in village halls there was mainly more, more women than men they were at the war but but i think it was different then and and 
she played, she went and played whist and all this. But for a couple of years, just between, I would be about 10 and 12, or just a wee bit younger, it kind of affected her. She blamed herself because the hospital said they could take him home. Mm. She could take him home. And then the doctor come round the ward and he says, well, I'd rather have him just for another two days because mm-hmm. the weather's kind of coldish. And here a child come in with diphtheria and you got it. And she kind of... You know how you think to yourself, oh, if I had just taken him home, it wouldn't have mattered probably because maybe the virus was there. But there wasn't the injections nor the medication and that we have nowadays. We are, I mean, I think we're over-medicated. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, there wasn't that then. I need to pay for your doctor. And, 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 and money was tight sometimes, you know. There wasn't a, there wasn't a lot to go around. You got your, your new shoes when the school took up at the end of and before that you wore your other ones you had you know that you'd mm-hmm. been wearing for months and hope your feet didn't grow <laughs> <laughs> but you only had to like one pair of shoes maybe two pair of shoes at the most but I think I think the war years although they were hard and there was great shortages there was a great camaraderie between people people mm-hmm. were well I felt it and I think so did other children do you think the war caused that camaraderie I think it did, and men went to war, and probably women were struggling at home and, and that. And, you know, it was just a case of, if you were at somebody playing with somebody else's, you just went in there and had a, a sandwich or whatever they were having at lunchtime with them. And then it was the same with you. If they came to your house, you just had the sandwich here, and sometimes you'd go back to your own house and have another one. <laughs> <laughs> I worked in a shop, and that was... What there was only Lipton's it was, and I loved it. How old were you? I was sixteen. What did the shop sell that you worked in? It, it sold everything. You know, if you want a bit of cheese, I cut you a bit, and if you want a pound of sugar, I weed it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't like now pre-packed. Nothing mm. was pre-packed, and it was it was lovely, you know. And then some elderly people they they needed their shopping taken to them and whoever is youngest in the shop it was their job and it was a wonderful job because you weren't carrying a whole lot of stuff to them you're just carrying the basics that they had ordered and it was you'd go there and and they'd maybe give you a cup of coffee or and there was no coffee then it would be tea or a drink of milk or something you know and like you'd go to the shop I loved the shop the shop it was all part of and you had to go way through the bank fill part of them for them it was, it was, and it wasn't a huge shop, but everything was in bags and uh, and it, it was very well run, I thought. No, and, and my mother and I were great pals. I mean, all our, all our life we were great pals. You know, and when I would go to, to work in the shop and I didn't like the dark... And it was quite difficult because, you know, it was Dundonald we were staying at and I worked in Kilmarnock in the shop and you got off the bus and there was this wee village. You you walked down this wee street and then I had a half mile into the country. But down the other side of Dundonald was an army camp and some of these soldiers would be at the cafe. There was a cafe there that they could go to. So my dad came for me every night because he always says, you don't know who's up that road. Mm. So, oh, <laughs> how could I tell you this, Anne, because I thought it was <laughs> off. So, one night, 
if ever she was doing her, she wasn't feeling well, my mum came for me. Uh-huh. And we were walking up the road, and of course, we always laughed and joked, and it was a bundle of fun. And she says to me, oh, Jane, I'll need to just go for a toilet. She says, I'll just go in here to the bushes and have a, a, a pedal. She says, you watch, see if anybody's about. And you know me, I waited till she, till she got in, and I says, uh-oh, hello, here's some somebody coming about four people. <laughs> <laughs> I got chased all the way home. <laughs> I mean, you know, she was she was fun. No, I I enjoyed my childhood really, except for that wee spell when my mother wasn't very well. When when there's nothing you could do for just if you're if you're pining if you lost somebody. Mm -hmm. Of course. You know, there's nothing you can do, and and and. I think I did a lot of the kind of shopping then or anything. She kind of just became a kind of recluse for about two years. We, uh, we didn't notice it because it just happened, you know, and, and we were kind of sad too because Jim was a lovely wee boy. You so. only realised afterwards that mm -hmm. that's happened. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it did affect us as a family until that time. But but then once you got over it, and I think when we moved away from mm -hmm. that house... And my dad, I think, thought a change would do her good, and we did. We moved to Irvine, and it did. It did improve. I'd been living in the farms all my life, you know. That I never ever worked in a dairy. Nobody ever noticed. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like dairy cows. Betty, my sister, liked them. I was a, it was a carry-on, you know, when you'd go in the buyer. My mother would say, oh, you're here, and she'd squirt the tit and squirt it, you'd give it cover. <laughs> In your face. Anywhere. <laughs> Anywhere. <laughs> she was a devil for doing that. <laughs> I mean, my mother was just like one of us girls, you know, she was mm -hmm. with four girls. I've got other I've got I've got four sisters. Well one died, but but uh, I mean she was a devil for that, you know. So <laughs> still quite surreal for me to hear stories of my great-grandmother, uh, Granny Carr, because I met her when I was a very small child. I remember her being very old and fragile, her skin was papery, and she was always sitting down. Um, and I don't actually remember anything that she ever said to me. I certainly would never have imagined her milking a cow until my granny said so. It's a bit of a strange experience to record family members, especially the older ones, because they can condense a decade of their lives into just a couple of minutes. And then they'll spend just as long telling you about some glimmering memory of milk squirting in the dairy. <laughs> It was so wonderful hearing your gran talk about her mother. Oral history is how our ancestors are kept alive and it's the foundation of our storytelling traditions here in Scotland. And I know it's just you and your granny, but it's a really personal way of looking back and tracing the history of your family. It's a way of teaching children who came before them and highlighting the importance of these people's lives. To hear the snippets of grief and perseverance, resilience and laughter, it was touching and your gran painted a beautiful picture of her family and childhood. 
it's a very precious and self-reflective process to be able to to make these kind of of interviews with my grandparents um i feel very lucky to know them and to be able to have these conversations Mm -hmm. um i'm really happy to be sharing them with the world yeah and i i'm Part of me is just really curious as to whether anyone else will be interested in listening. And I guess we'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) And what's great is we've now sort of met your grandpa and we've met your granny. And in the next episode, they're going to meet each other. So, yeah. So listen in to hear the love story. Love in the lowlands between Annie's granny and papa. Thank you so much for listening to Stories of Scotland. It's been wonderful. Slanjava. Slanjava.